0: Summer is a great time to catch up on reading, but maybe you want to do more than just pick up a good book. Perhaps you want to write one, Okay, we're down with that. On this morning, Cityscape, advice for aspiring writers on how to get published. And for those of you who just want to read, don't worry, we got your back, too. Coming up, we'll chat with the author of a new book that makes for perfect summer reading. It's called Homegirl, Building a Dream House on a Lawless Block. Our particular street
1: was controlled by a gang of about 60 guys. They ran the street.
0: And later, it's the final chapter for what's said to be the Bronx's last independent bookstore, I'm George Boraki. Glad you're with me for Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. A lot of people dream of being a writer, but how do you break into the business and actually write a book and get it published? Joining me now in the studio is a man with some insight. His name is Lewis Burke Frumkiss. Lewis is the director of the Writing Center at Marymount Manhattan College. Good morning, Lewis. Good morning, George. Let's help folks who simply have an idea. Yes. Let's Where go. do they go with that idea? Right. They have an idea for a book. Yeah. They want to be a writer. They want to make money. What do they do?
2: I always tell students you need three things to Publish and to get published successfully. You need a modicum of talent, you need marketing skills, and you need perseverance.
0: You need talent, huh? Because I've read a lot modicum. of books that were pretty bad. All right. modicum. Of <laughs> All right. That's, that's why I emphasize
2: <laughs> modicum. <laughs> and, George, you must remember that one editor's taste is different from another mm-hmm. editor's taste. For example, you may like Joe O'Neill's new book, Netherland. Brilliant. I mean, Kakatani raved about it. Someone else likes uh, Mary Higgins Clark. And you cannot say. You're wrong. It's just like people always said about humor. It's so subjective. What do you say to someone who uh, doesn't think your work is funny? You're an idiot. You're a moron. You don't. Know you can't say anything. There is no defense. They don't think it's funny. Tough. Okay. Tough. So you need a little bit of talent. Modicum. Mm-hmm. Modicum of talent, marketing skills, and perseverance. Okay. So the modicum of talent. No doubt, if you're trying, and if no one has blocked your way and said this is the worst stuff I've ever read. You have a modicum of talent, and you might have a great idea. And, and this is very complicated also because you could have a great idea. Recently I ran a uh, writer's conference at Merriman, and we had a ghost panel for the first time. So you could have a great idea, but you can't write. Without You don't even have the modicum of talent, but you have good ideas. You could hire a ghost to do or any variation on that thing. But let's assume you want to write it yourself and you have a great idea and you want to write. There are two ways to go. One is to, the easiest way is probably to publish in feature or an article in one of the hundreds of thousands of magazines in the United States alone because they run six, eight features and articles every issue. And after a few months, the ideas dry up, the brains of the editors dry up. They're hungry for ideas. So do some
0: homework, find out which magazines would want that idea.
2: Yes, that's an important way. And then approach them, look at the masthead, send it to the nonfiction editor or the and and you send what we call a query letter, which is a one-page seductive proposal that entices the editor and says why you're the perfect—the idea is great and why you're the perfect person to
0: do it. So you want some biographical information to say, yes. this is who I am and this is why I know so much about this topic.
2: Yes, and they come back and say, that's interesting. Can you do it in three weeks? You, of course you can, and uh, we'll pay you anywhere from $2 to 20000 And, of course, you take whichever they offer, and then you you get going. And the next time you want to send something in, you have an easier time of it because now your work has been published in uh, whatever that magazine is. The other way to go is for a book, of course, and people forever dream of, of writing a book. For a book, you need an agent because books are increasingly complicated to negotiate, to sell, uh, and there's far more at stake. So you you can send it over the transom to a publisher, but it'll probably bounce back at you, read by some underling reader who just shoots it back to you. How
0: hard is it to get an agent, someone to believe in you? Harder than to get published. Hmm. hmm,
2: figure that one out. That's a paradox. Agents are important to get published. They sell your work for you. They winnow the thousands of publishers down to the ones that would be interested in the kind of work you're doing, and they negotiate the complicated thing, and they tell why you're terrific and wonderful. Well, let me ask However, you this, Lou. Yeah. What
0: comes first, the book or the agent? The Can book. you go, you So you can't just go to an agent with an idea? No
2: agent is going to take you on with no record. Mm-hmm. Um, most agents... Uh, have they, oh, they 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 like everyone else they're in the business less goodwill than it used to be it's more less philanthropy and more business bottom line they want to make money if you wrote Harry Potter they want to publish your second book cuz they can smell the new uh,
0: castle they're going to build so you have to have pretty good marketing skills you
2: have to have pretty good marketing skills, and I didn't even get into that part of it yet. But this is very, very important because you have to sell yourself. Mm-hmm. The first, but but before you, we're jumping ahead. First thing is you have to write. What do you want to write? Right. And uh, you have an idea for a nonfiction book. It's one kind of. You can do a nonfiction book by writing a a book proposal with a, an outline, a proposal letter, an introduction, a couple of sample chapters, mm-hmm. and so forth. And you can sell it on the basis of a book proposal. Mm-hmm. A novel is different. Fiction is different you have to complete the manuscript because legion are the people who may, who can start novels and legion are the people who cannot finish novels and all publishers and agents know that so no matter how winning your proposal is or your first chapter it's a long way to the end i myself when i many years ago i was teaching up at harvard and i was uh started a novel called Devereaux Beach—that's what it was, based in Marblehead. By page eighty, I noticed that my main character had a different name from when I started, <laughs> and I said, "You know, what is this telling me?" You know, I'd always written short humor pieces. Maybe I'm not a novelist. Actually, I think it was pretty good, but I got so discouraged I put it aside and never finished it. Hmm. And many, many people do that. So they want to see a complete manuscript. And uh, But to get an agent, you either have to get, you want a recommendation or from a writer you know who uses an agent, or you can send it cold to the various agents. You can call the Society of Authors, Representatives, see who they are, send uh, proposals out, say, I have a great new novel called uh, The Da Vinci Code and I want to publish it. And if they like it and they see it sings to them, maybe they'll get you, but it's not easy because the agents can only handle so many clients at one time. I mean, and that's tough. And then once they take you on, you have no guarantee. But everybody also wants to get the Andrew Wiley's and Binky Urbans and the superstars of agent And that's not right either. I wrote an article for The Writer magazine, on which I sit on the editorial board, about how to get an agent. And what you really want is someone who believes in you, someone who loves what you do and is willing to advocate for you. That's more important than the hotshot who will read it once,
0: drop it to the bottom of the list if they don't sell it immediately, and then you're forgotten. You say that there's no guarantee that you'll get published even with an agent, but is it likely? Do you see it happen quite frequently more than it doesn't happen?
2: There are a lot of books published uh, each year, and there are a lot of books that don't get published. A good agent will hang on, though. I know an agent who, 10 years after she received a manuscript, got so excited,
0: she sold the book after 10 years. 10 years she persisted until she sold it. When should you, as a writer, decide to give up on your agent and try someone else? People
2: come to me all the time and say, you know, I I may need a new agent. You know, she wasn't able to sell this book or that book. She tried twice. How how many— places did she send it how many it's tough i had an agent didn't didn't sell a book twice and then i went to another agent she immediately sold all my books it's like choosing a psychiatrist you know do you know you're going to get better when you go to a psychiatrist there's a there's it's it's dicey and uh you want to go to someone with a good reputation who really is enthusiastic about your work and you give them a shot until it seems uh, that it's really going nowhere or the chemistry is terrible. So you say, look, maybe it's not you. The agent may tell you before you tell them that this isn't a good pairing. Uh, Maybe you want to try someone else. What about self-publishing? Vanity publishing or self-publishing is definitely an option, especially today. I think it's the court of last resort. I I would rather go with a traditional publisher, uh, the Knopps, the Random House, the Simon & Schuster's, the Crown's, whatever you have, because they have big teams of everything, editors marketing people to do it right. They pay you out in advance. They have big uh, resources to put in back of your effort. Self-publishing is an option. But how many self-published books do you read? How do you get the distribution? Do you have an endless pocketbook to fund all of that? Now, the wonderful thing about the new age is you can go to, like, an iUniverse, and they give you options. For $750, we'll publish your book. The $1,500, we will also distribute it. For $3,500, we will also publicize it. So they give you options. I would not look my nose down
0: on it. You could, though, potentially go into debt and never make the- the money back to pay off yes, the debt. B-
2: yes, but by the same token, you will be out there somewhere. And the world is so... You know, nowadays, George, everybody, you get into the bookstore, you have like a 12-minute shelf life. And you, you either are uh, your face out for 12 minutes and then bang your spine out. And if no one hears about your book and no one asks for your book, so it goes. Uh, on the other hand, it could explode. John O'Neill, who I spoke to recently, wrote Netherland, was telling me he took seven years to write Netherland, which got amazing reviews. His first two books didn't do much, you know, And but somebody believed in him, the publisher, and they kept going with him. And then suddenly, and he took seven years, you know, living on nothing and everything else and putting his life and blood into it, and it... Broke out and this did. is
0: someone, though, Lewis, I'm sure, who is doing it for the love of writing, absolutely, not to make Money. a million.
2: Well, that's probably the reason you should get into writing is not to make the millions. That's hard. Although I I should tell you that everybody says that, you know, be a purist, write for the love, and you want to write. And it's true, because otherwise you'll suffer. But Nicholas Sparks once told me, he set out, he said, I I did it mechanically. I said, what'll sell a lot? Romance. Lots of people, they love romance. I love romance. I'll write romance books. He got 27 rejections. And on the 28th, his agent called him in New Bern, North Carolina. I said, Nikki is sitting down. Yeah, you know why? Because he was teaching and coaching and tracking. He said, I, I sold your book. She said, Oh my God, that's wonderful. But well, It's better than that, Nick. I got you a million dollar advance on the notebook. And that was the first of many. Now, he actually is very bright and he, he did a calculated book uh, in a sense because he designed what he thought would, he didn't want to pick, uh, you know, Norwegian axe murders as a small uh, genre. He chose something like romance, which was big, and which he thought he would have a chance at, and which he loved, and he did a good thing. Other people, you really you have to love what you do because the average freelance writer in America lives a uh, sub-poverty level, if you depend on that, which is the reason why I never tell students or friends who are writing to give up their job as CEO of IBM just yet. You know, hold on to your job. You can write in the night, you can write on the weekends, and you write because you love. I always write because, because I love. I couldn't resist writing humorous pieces. And and then I, I sent them in. I just got lucky when I did. I never knew anything about public. I never took courses, although now I run 15 courses in creative writing and journalism, you can't inject talent into someone. But you certainly can teach them how to market their work, how to uh, get ideas, how to... do a lot. You you, you kind of teach them all around it, and you put them in the right atmosphere to do it and encourage them and that kind of thing.
0: Louis Burke Frumpkus, you are the director of the Writing Center at Marymount Manhattan College. Thank you so much for all of this advice. My great pleasure, George. Thank you for having me on the show. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Hello again, I'm George Bodarkey. If you don't want to write a book, maybe you're in the market for something fresh to read. We ask people around New York City to tell us what their noses are in these days. My name is Dino Rhodes from the Bronx, New York City. I am reading Happiness. It's by Robert
2: Holden. Um, It's an inspiring book on happiness and how to achieve it and how to learn how to be happy recommended by Oprah, too. Reading is food for my brain, especially on a train.
3: Today I'm reading Life Labs. It's um, Jenny McCarthy's new book. I'm taking a break from my school books. Um, I'm going to school for my RN, for nursing. And I usually have my face in all the books, and it's usually my medical books. But today is Jenny McCarthy. My name is Crystal Soto, and I'm from White Plains.
2: My name is Maurice Steele. I'm from the Bronx. Made Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. Gates of Fire is about the Spartan War. So far, it has gripped me in a sense that, although I put it down, it's like I always pick up and read at least two, three pages on a train or when I go home. You know, you get on the train, take a book, a magazine, because if you stop reading, you become stagnated. You cannot think. Reading is a power that people doesn't seem to understand that they have uh, their fingers dipped. Okay.
1: My name is Monica Valenzuela and I'm from Staten Island. I'm reading Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake. It's what I've classified as a post-apocalyptic novel about um, Bull, a character who's renamed himself. He's the only one left of like a human race of a sort. I don't know, I'm 123 pages in, so I don't really know. But uh, yeah, it's interesting thus far. It goes back to this kind of unstable dystopia and then back to the present time uh, of his character. I just bought um, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. I think that's the author. And uh, it's, again, a post-apocalyptic kind of book, so I think that's the theme for the summer.
2: I'm reading The Count of Monte Cristo. My name is Nick Vita from Stuyvesant Town. It's about a gentleman who is deceived by his friends and ends up in jail and escapes to get revenge. Well, as you can see, I'm only about halfway through, but I kind of know what happens because I saw the movie. It's pretty entertaining. I think it's actually better than the movie because, I mean, the book came first, and it's much more detailed.
0: What am I reading? I thought you'd never ask. Well, I just finished a great new book called Home Girl. It's the story of a foreign correspondent who buys a fixer-upper in a different kind of war zone, a drug-riddled West Harlem neighborhood. Author Judith Matloff dropped by our studios to talk about her real-life experiences. How's life in West Harlem these days?
1: Uh, It's a lot calmer than uh, during the years that I wrote the book. It was crazy then. It was absolutely insane. I mean, you would get out of the, the one train stop at 137th Street. And as he walked up just a few blocks, it, it was like Times Square. You had to be walk like a linebacker, pushing through crowds of men, leading into cars and SUVs, shouting, buy, sell, five kilos, one kilo. I mean, it, it, I mean, it, was, it was fun, but it was madness, absolute madness. And our particular street was controlled by a gang of about 60 guys. They ran the street so if you wanted anything done, you had to deal with these guys.
0: You were a foreign correspondent living in Moscow when you decided to return to New York. You are a native New Yorker. Your yes. family's from Queens. Yes. <laughs> How did you settle on West Harlem?
1: Uh, money. We had no money. <laughs> or well, I mean, we had some money, obviously. And we couldn't get a mortgage because my husband was still in Moscow. He still hadn't gotten his green card when I came back to hunt for a house despite having had very good credit for 20 years abroad, my very good credit wasn't in the United States. I had zero credit record and I couldn't get a mortgage. And I also had quit my job to come to the States. So I wasn't exactly a very um, attractive prospect for a bank. So I only had some savings that I'd saved up and a little help from my mom. And my husband didn't really want to come back to New York. So he set this one condition. It had to be a house for something enormous. And, you know, where are you going to afford something that's enormous when you have no money? It has to be in some, uh, what, what I think what uh, the euphemism is a, quote, emerging neighborhood, unquote. Mm-hmm.
0: We should say that this was an impulse buy, this home purchase.
1: Yeah. <laughs> when I opened my Sunday Times and there was an ad of something that was so cheap and so huge, it I just couldn't believe that something like this could be offered. It was like a dream. So I rushed up you know, rushed up on the one train whatnot and got into this house and people were bidding and I kind of got into it and I couldn't reach my husband who was in Moscow on the cell phone and I sort of said a little silent message to him telepathically, "Uh, John, I hope this is okay, and I pledged every cent of our savings in retirement on this house and um, about a week later I found out that it was a crack den.
0: (laughs) And your neighbor also was an addict who lived in... A crack den.
1: Yeah, he had uh, occupied our house, and the cops had very nicely moved him out of what was now our house, but we didn't know that at the time, uh, into the crack house next door, and he still felt that he owned our house. His name was Salami.
0: Tell us about Salami. You had a pretty... Intimidating experience with him,
1: yeah. But um, if anybody wants to see the video, now we're actually very, very good friends. Matter of fact, he came by for coffee the other morning. Uh, but when we first moved in, he well, the first time I met him, he was high. He was high as a kite. So yeah, and you know, crack does that. People get a little bit more aggressive than they normally are. I was afraid he was going to stab me. He basically said, "Hate your house, Mama. And I'm going to get back." And then he repeated that several other times, and he wasn't too friendly. But as time went on um, and we got to know each other, he actually turned out to be a complete mensch. And, um, you know, sometimes when there's a party on a Friday night out on the street and there's a lot of glass, you know, because people get drunk and they throw bottles around. We'll see Salami the next morning sweeping up the glass because he doesn't want my kid to get cut. So he's he's actually a pretty decent guy.
0: You were a reporter. Yes. You worked in some pretty dangerous places, Chechnya, Rwanda. And then you moved to West Harlem.
1: Yeah, which was not as dangerous as they were.
0: Did that prepare you, though, that experience as a reporter in these difficult places?
1: In two respects, probably, yes. It's a very humbling thing to cover a full-blown conflict. I mean, you're seeing people, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have lost their homes. They've lost their families. They've lost their limbs. They've lost everything. And it teaches you to be a less whiny individual. So the sort of things that I would have whined about, like, oh, there's these guys, you know, in front of my house here, you know, know, the plumbing isn't working. That sort of thing becomes less disturbing to you when you've done it. And also your tolerance for danger. I mean, when you've been under artillery uh, bombardment, somehow like some stoned out guy with a pen knife doesn't seem as scary as, you know, he's not aiming an RPG at you or something.
0: But you did have drive-by shootings on your block. No,
1: by the time I moved in, those had stopped. They had stopped. Yeah, yeah, no, the neighborhood was far nicer then.
0: Were you at all fearful, though, that there could be an outbreak of violence?
1: Yes, all the time.
0: Miguel was the lead drug dealer on your block.
1: Yeah, he was was actually an immensely charming man, and I had such mixed feelings when he was arrested, because on the one hand, he was the devil that we knew, and he was a very gentlemanly fellow, and we knew that he was not going to hurt us, and who was going to take his place? And we knew that if he was arrested, the gang was still going to be there. And it was—it was, it was in, in a way, it was better to have him there, him as an individual. He was a very, very nice, respectful man.
0: You politely asked him to keep the other folks off your steps.
1: Yeah, because they used to defecate and urinate on our steps, and they used to eat lunch there and leave all this garbage. And my primary concern was not only the hygiene of having somebody use your, your stoop as a toilet, but you know, you get fined in New York City if you if you own property. You get fined if there's garbage in front of your house. And I didn't want to, I mean, I didn't want to be getting $200 fines for for a chicken bone that I hadn't eaten. If I'd eaten it, maybe it would have been a different matter, but I hadn't. So, so that was really my primary concern was actually it was a monetary thing and, and hygiene.
0: When you tried to form relationships, when you tried to Become allies with the drug dealers on your streets so you could live peacefully. Did you at all use the tactics that you used when you were in war-torn countries to do your job?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, you always go to the top guy. You go to the top guy and then you tell the, the his minions, well, you know, I just spoke to your boss and he said this, and that's usually the most effective technique your listeners can't see me. I'm I'm five foot three and I weigh about ninety eight pounds. I mean I'm not I'm not a very fearsome looking person. So a macho technique was not useful. My husband, unlike me, looks fairly macho. He's six one and extremely athletic looking. As a matter of fact they all thought he was a cop. And we thought it would be better if I dealt with them rather than John, because uh, what we'd learned in Africa is you get into, like, if you're going up to a roadblock and you've got a female correspondent and a male correspondent, you should get the female to talk because she's less threatening. The guys just, I don't know, they get all puffed up and macho. And, um, you know, my husband comes from a working class background. He's very, very macho. And I just thought, you know, uh uh-uh, this guy should not be negotiating. So that was another technique that we imported from abroad.
0: The dealers on your block were largely Dominican.
1: Yeah. Well, my neighborhood's Dominican, and likewise in Washington Heights. And, you know, I mean, I also develop a a fair amount of sympathy for these guys. You know, they come over from a country which which is one of the poorest in the Western Hemisphere. There aren't a lot of means to make money. Most of them just really just want to send money back to support their families and get a nice little retirement home in their, you know, little cinder block house in their village. And, I mean, you know, one can't help but sympathize. I mean, I don't really like the methods, but one can't. Help, but sympathize with somebody to want to make a decent living for their family and for themselves, and it's a quick way to make money. You, you know, and it, and because a lot of people are here undocumented, it's very hard for them to get legitimate jobs. So, in a way, the the difficulties of an, un, undocumented people here drives them to illicit activities.
0: When all of this drug activity was taking place on your block, where were the police?
1: Aha, they were on the street, and they had their own complaints because they were very very. Um, under-resourced. I mean, for instance, one of the biggest complaints in the neighborhood is noise complaints. And these guys didn't even have enough noise meters to, which apparently you need this meter and then you do the complaint and everything. And the other thing, what they felt was that they weren't getting um, enough support from the then Commissioner Bernard Carrick. Uh, What we noticed ourselves is that once Giuliani was gone and once Carrick was gone and once Um, Ray Kelly, the current commissioner, came in. And once Bloomberg came in, the neighborhood just turned around just like that. Kelly actually made it a priority to clean up this neighborhood. Whereas Giuliani was concerned with Times Square and wealthier areas, but largely he couldn't care less about inner city areas or areas of people of color.
0: Your African-American neighbors felt helpless against the Dominican drug dealers. They came to you for help.
1: Well, they came to me asking me to – I wouldn't say they came to me for help. Well, didn't one (laughs) woman
0: say to you, you know what, they're going to listen to a white woman. They're not listening to us black folks.
1: Right. Yeah, I don't want to paint myself as the great white, you know, savior. But no, what they did is they asked for collaboration. What – my role was to be the white front. So if they were having meetings with the police and whatnot, there would be a white face there who – and, you know, I hate to say it, but – as the number of white people moved into the neighborhood, it it did seem to us that definitely the police were responding more. Um, and it's a very sad statement on politics and authority in this, in this city. But unfortunately, if you're seen to have money, people listen more.
0: Was there ever a time, Judith, that you just wanted to pack things up and leave? I didn't get that impression from no. the book. I mean, occasionally maybe you had some thoughts. I should have done research. I'm a reporter. Why didn't I look into this neighborhood before I bought this house? But it didn't seem like you wanted to flee.
1: Oh no. Oh I mean as much as I was irritated by a lot of what was happening I was absolutely amused and entertained and you know and my husband just loves adventures. I mean he he would have died if we had bought in Chelsea or something. He would have he would have divorced me and gone back somewhere horrible. You know because when you're a foreign correspondent you don't really have a community. You don't really belong anywhere. And suddenly For the first time since high school, since my teen years, I actually had a community. I mean, it's like a little village where we live. And that was so intensely beguiling. I mean, the fact that you could belong somewhere. And, you know, you're a complete misfit and oddball, but you belong. And I have this, I guess, I don't know if you could call it deny, you know, I'm in denial or whatever. But I always kind of feel things are somehow going to work out. You know, I spent a lot of time flattling myself, telling myself I'm an idiot. But underneath it all, I always feel, well, somehow things are going to work out. And, you know, they did in their fashion.
0: <laughs> well, the book is Homegirl, Building a Dream House on a Lawless Block. Judith Matloff, thanks so much for sharing. Thank you. Homegirl is out now from Random House. So we've given you some ideas on what to read, but what about where to get those books? You can turn to the Internet or hit up one of the big chain stores. But maybe you prefer the adventurous spirit of the independent bookseller, if you can still find one. A lot of them have closed their doors in recent years. In fact, they're on the verge of extinction in the Bronx. Cityscape reporter Ellen Burke has more.
4: The number of independent bookstores across the country and in New York is dwindling. But the loss of some stores may be felt more than others. After 38 years in business, what's said to be the only independent bookstore in the Bronx closes on Monday. There's no room at the inn for him in
3: this.
4: Fern Jaffe opened Paperbacks Plus in Riverdale in 1970. Since then, the stores hosted authors ranging from Toni Morrison to Frank McCourt. And every Yankee who's written a book has also crossed the threshold. But Jaffe says the store is always focused on selling lesser-known books and being more in tune to the neighborhood than big chains often are.
3: We created this wonderful sense of community between the bookstore and our customers. And we were known for our customer service and our uh, knowing what we were doing. And our passion for book selling was evident.
4: Jaffe says all independent bookstores build important relationships with their communities. She says Paperbacks Plus put an extra emphasis on neighborhood kids. He says kids have made birthday wish lists, done projects on books that have been banned across the country, and bought books to send to other kids overseas.
3: In fact, you know, there isn't anything that you can do in a bookstore that we haven't done at least once. I had kids reviewing books. I would give them books, and I'd ask them to give it one ice cream cone, two ice cream cones, and three ice cream cones and tell me if they liked it.
4: For Jaffe, not all of the bookstore's projects had to be about books themselves. She says the stores made political statements over the years. In more recent years, Paperbacks Plus handed out petitions against the Patriot Act. Jaffe says the stores also stood up for the environment. We were recycling paper
3: bags before we even used plastic. I went out and bought a 1,000 canvas totes and had them printed with a statement, recycling partners, me and my bookstore, purposely grammatically incorrect. To call attention to what we were saying. And we gave them out, encouraging people to not take paper bags but to
4: carry these talks. Jaffe says she's closing Paperbacks Plus because after 38 years, she's ready to retire. She says some people have shown interest in taking over the store and she's looking at business proposals as she gears up for the store's last day of business. She plans to put advanced reading copies sent by publishers on display.
3: And we're going to put them out on the empty shelves and invite our customers to buy them. Or a better way to put it is to invite our customers to take them. Every one they take, we're going to ask them to give us $2. And we're going to give the money that we collect that day to five non-sectarian community organizations as a way of saying thank you to the community.
4: Jeffy says even though her store is closing, other independents in New York still have strong connections to their customers. And after the big closeout on Monday, she's thinking positive. She hopes somebody comes in and does it bigger and better than she did. For Cityscape, I'm Ellen Burke.
0: That brings us to the final chapter of this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. Have a storybook weekend.